Snap Studios. Step Judgment is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Okay, so I was always scared of my grandfather. <laughs> Let me scratch that. I was always scared of my grandmother because she chased me around the neighborhood swinging an extension cord like I was a runaway. So yeah, that's where the fear came from. But that was just beating scared, once in a while scared. Uh-oh, I broke the window scared. But a different type of fear clung to the relationship with my grandfather, which was strange because granddaddy almost always had a smile, a laugh. He liked to look good, smell good, ties, powder, fancy man. Born to a time black folk weren't supposed to have heirs, but he held his head high, shoes gleaming like a soldier. He'd see me and shout, Pat Jackson, get your head bone over here. Grab me by the nose and pull a few dollars out of my ear. How did you, now go get your granddaddy a pack of cools and bring me back my change. I knew he didn't mean it. At least the part about the change. I'd run to the corner and play video games with my cousins. I learned to always carry a book because he loved that his grandson could read. Tell me what it say, Pap Jackson. And I did. Science books. Dragon stories. He didn't care. He'd blow smoke and say, that's my grandbaby right there. Ain't nobody going to tell him what to do. It felt good when he said it. It felt better. And one day, Granddaddy forgot his lunch on the kitchen table. And Granny said, a man can't work unless a man eat. So we grabbed it and took three bus transfers out to the east side of Detroit. Walked to an ugly, soot-covered, angry building I followed behind my grandmother and she slid open a door and another door into darkness. Hissing, bellows, building, breathing, sounds. And out of the gloom, I see glowing red racks of metal, grunting men working, pinchers lifting burning steel plates from one vat to another. The racks screamed as they cooled in liquid baths, glows fading until men yanked them back into the furnace. This, the last supplier to a supplier of a supplier of an automotive plant in Detroit. But to me, it looked like Hades. And when I saw a man come over, rip off a welder's mask, and under a dust-stained face unleash my grandfather's smile, I knew the fear wasn't of my grandfather. It was for him. My fancy, powdered, sensitive, smooth-talking, ice-cream-loving, sweet-smelling grandfather spending his days caged in darkness. This man of light? No. No. But then she handed him 
his lunchbox. Hands held for two seconds as it passed from one to the other. He looked down at me, grinned, howled, Pat Jackson! Pinched me on the nose, then pulled his mask back on and walked back into the gloom. Snap Judgment. From WNYC, we proudly present Man of Steel. Amazing stories from real people stronger than anyone ever knew. My name is Glenn Washington. Remember, every hero does not wear a cape because you're listening to Snap Judgment. For our first story, back in the mid-1970s, Ben Holmes was a loving husband, a father, a successful business owner, living the dream, right? Our story begins right at the end. The pain woke me up. 52 staples. I felt blessed to be alive. I never actually knew how many times I had been shot. I had tubes going everywhere, going up my nose. I had an IV in each arm. I was the only person in the hospital room. The first thing I wanted to know, did they know who I was? But uh, I looked at the ID bracelet, it said unknown. Okay, they still don't know who I am. I still have a shot here. All right, let's rewind two decades from this moment. This is Ben Holmes. Back in the mid-70s in Youngstown, Ohio, Ben had his own auto shop called UFO Productions. But he wasn't your ordinary mechanic. He was the go-to guy for the Fast and Furious kind of crowd. I come up with crazy stuff like using inserts into the cylinder blocks that were made out of Kevlar. You can uh, basically allow more friction. All right, not going to lie. I don't own a car, don't care much about him. But Ben, well, he was a car geek. His cars were on drag strips, NASCAR, underground race circuits. He was also taking classes on the side to get his master's in engineering. And that night, he went home to his young family. I pretty much was head over heels in love with my wife, had just married in 76. I thought the world of her, and we had adopted uh, her niece. You know, we were raising a child like our own and uh, sending her to private school. You know, she was doing very well in school. Ben tried his best to shelter his family from Youngstown, a city described by the FBI as Crimestown, USA, or the last mob-controlled city in America. While he often did auto work for the Fast and Furious and, you know, the underground crowd, he kept his interactions strictly business. There was a turf war going on in our town at the time, and I didn't want any part of that. My father had a little taste of that for a while, and, and believe me, he emphasized all the time, get your education, be straight as you can, because you can end up being somebody's slave if you take the other route. One day, uh, the guys I call fake black Muslims, they were black Muslims in name only. We knew that they didn't attend the mosque, they didn't particularly follow the tenets of Islam. Uh, but, uh, we, you know, we didn't make any waves about it. It was their thing. 
So the guys pulled me off to the side about me welding up something for them that was somewhat similar to my racing car mufflers. Uh, they showed me a blueprint for a silencer using mufflers off lawnmowers. As you know, silencers dampen the sound of gunshots. They were invaluable, but they were expensive, and of course, you needed a permit. So here, the Black Mafia wanted Ben's help to mass-produce these cheap silencers from lawnmowers. They would cost only 6 or $7 a pop, but would be worth gold in the black market. I was scared to death. These were dangerous people. See, their objective was to take over the Italian mob. They wanted to supplant them. My shop was one block from the uh, local godfather, Joey Naples. So for them to even hang around my shop was putting me in jeopardy anyway. And I looked it over and told them, I said, you know, uh, this is illegal. Uh, what that thing was, well, you don't really have to make it and just tell us how we can make it. I generally don't stress out, but this had me pretty, pretty much stressed because we're talking about life and death. I, I discussed it with my wife, but my wife told me, uh, if you don't, then you can have problems. And if you do, you can have problems. I refused them, but they came at me so many times, so often, I just decided I'd appease them and do something better than nothing. I told them, I, hey, you know what? I said, I can look over the uh, flaws in the blueprints. I can correct them for you, and that's the best I can do. And they were satisfied with it for the time being. So, so now that I've done a little something for them, I thought that I was safe for a while. Uh, but the Italian mafia had a little bar down the street from us. I go down there every day, lunchtime, on the nose, and then uh, the one gentleman down there, the manager, asked me why was I helping the other side. It's all over town. The, the fake black Muslims are telling folks they're taking over, and you're aiding them. I told him, I said, all I did was went over some blueprints they approached me with. So, of course, he uh, insisted that I do the same for him. So he did. Ben hoped that this would keep him out of the fray. But then he was approached by a cop who went by Pitbull. He wasn't in trouble, really. It's just that some crooked cops wanted in on the silencer gig, too. So here's the third party coming at me about guns and silencers. Pitbull came up with this thing about they had inside sources who had told them that I was uh, working both sides of the fake black Muslims and the Italians. So I'm sitting on the fence and he was telling me that there is a third option. You can roll with us. You help us, we'll help you. And I didn't really trust him. I figured the whole thing was a setup. Pitbull was relentless and kept on dropping by Ben's house with the deal. But he always refused or gave an excuse. At the time, Ben says that the police department was plagued by corruption. While many of these crooked cops would later be arrested and convicted, but at the time, they too were trying to get rich off these silencers. So Ben decided to protect himself. He bought a personal tape recorder and started recording his police encounters. Then he sent them anonymously to the local FBI office, but he never heard back. One night, I went home uh, just about dark. One of my neighbors had his daughter there in my driveway. They told me that somebody had been in my house on and off through the course of the day. The, the child and her father intimated that no, nobody took anything out. They just sit in the driveway and they went in and out the house. And the lights they had come on in the uh, driveway and in the, inside the house out in the foyer, when it got dark, were not on. So uh, I went to the door. The door was uh, unlocked 
slightly cracked. I went on inside the door cautiously because I'm, I'm hoping nobody's inside the place. I got inside, I hit the light switch, and that's when the whole place just blew up. I was inhaling fire fumes. My hair was burnt off my head, my skin was all gone. I'm screaming out, oh God, not now, I won't even see my daughter. My wife was pregnant, she was getting ready to have our child soon. Ben passed out. When he came to, he was lying in a hospital bed in an emergency burn center. 60% of his body, from his head to his waist, was burnt. While in the hospital, Ben got a surprise visitor. Pitbull came by told me how sorry he was all this had happened to me, but uh, if I had picked wisely with him and his team, then I would have been protected and so would my family, because after all, what if the little girl had been in there? What if your wife had been in there? We could have protected you. Somebody else probably did this. So he wanted me to believe somebody else was involved. He was smirking. He was, everything he said was sarcastic. Now the next thing he wants to know, what's going to be your next move? You know, we still need the silencers and people still willing to pay handsome. We can all get rich. And then after I told him I wasn't getting involved in anything or I was concerned it was healing up, he said, well, you know, it's a damn shame that uh, uh, this looks like arson. A lot of folks are saying that you had something to do with this to collect insurance money. He said, now nah, I can make a deal with you and we can work things out and, and uh, you can still get paid. But again, Ben said no. And then he was charged with arson. But soon after, Pitbull gave him a call. This tape is from 1980, soon after Ben was locked up for a bit and charged with arson. This thing was, the whole problem here is failure to communicate, uh, and uh, I can offer you more than anybody else, and as well as protection. Uh, he goes on to say things like he's had special permission from the prosecutor to make me special deals, uh, uh, the likes of which I'd never see again. Since Ben kept on saying no, he thought Pipple would give up. But that's when he saw himself on TV. It was a 6 o'clock news in the evening. I got had a sandwich or something. I'm sitting there watching. I'm almost choking on the sandwich because they're saying that I'm the head of three gangs. They said that I have influence over the Italians. I have a, a, a Hispanic gang, some black Muslims. Uh, you know, I'm sanctioning hits and everything else. And uh, I have a silencer laboratory. A TV host said that the police had issued a shoot on sight. He's dangerous. I think I, I think I might have had a slight heart attack right then and there. I went down to one knee. As my mother came in and she was watching the program, she actually had to get me back up. I said, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. I have to get out of here. I have to get out of here now. 
I just run, the next thing I'm going to do is threaten my family. So I'm going to have to make it look like somebody killed me. When Stamp Judgment returns, find out what happens after Ben decided to die. And the Man of Steel episode continues. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Man of Steel episode. When last we left, just a moment ago, our hero, Ben Holmes, had just made the ultimate decision. I have to get out of here. I have to get out of here now. If I just run, the next thing I'm going to do is threaten my family. So I'm going to have to make it look like somebody killed me. I had no other options other than that. I couldn't think of anything else. So that night, Ben packed a few things in his backpack and slipped away when his wife was asleep. He drove his car to a nearby warehouse to prep his death scene. He used a hypodermic needle and drew four vials of his own blood. Then he poured his blood into a high-pressure spray gun and dispersed it across the seats. I had a, a 38 caliber revolver that was fired through both windows so that gunpowder would be mixed with blood. Then I had some blood running down my hand that dripped like, as if I was, you know, damaged, hurt, dripped some of that across the seat. Then Ben placed his bloody fingerprints on top of the hood and car door to make it look like he was trying to escape. With three sides involved, Ben figured each of the parties would think that the other had done away with him for not playing ball. I knew right then and there that I wouldn't see my daughter take her first steps. I knew that uh, I wouldn't see my niece get her various scholarships. I knew that uh, I wouldn't be able to take her back and forth to dancing practice. I shed many tears, but I never actually broke. If so, I won't admit it. And then there was a thing about my mother and my father and my brothers, and for them to just uh, find a car sitting someplace like that, you know, what are they supposed to think? They're supposed to think the same thing everybody else is supposed to think. One of Ben's close friends, who was in on the escape, picked him up and they left town. He stayed at his friend's place until everyone was convinced that he was dead. But a few months later, he got back into touch with his wife at home. She came down, brought my uh, newborn baby. Uh, my mother came down to see me several times. My father and all my brothers came down to see me. They even brought my 96-year-old grandmother down to see me. They gave me some money, clothing. They loved me and they kissed me and then they tried to beat the hell out of me. My mother physically hit me and she said, you're supposed to have some sense. This is the best you can come up with. <laughs> uh, I said, yeah, at the time. See, my, my thing is, I thought with the information on the tapes that the police and the FBI had, I would figure they would come down on somebody somewhere soon. But for now, he spent his days at another auto shop in Cleveland, Ohio, around an hour away from Youngstown, far away but close enough to his family. There, he started a plan to enter his life under a new identity and disguise. Before, he was clean-shaven and wore glasses. But now, he grew a beard, long hair, and got contacts. 
because of the burns. My skin had already gone from uh, the color of Michael Jordan's to the color of, say, Tiger, the, the golfer. The hands were a giveaway with the pink spots on the back of my hands. So we went and got those hands uh, tattooed at the uh, local tattoo parlor. And after about six, seven hours of them doing that, uh, it, looked, it looked acceptable. The months eventually became a year, then two. And Ben was still living in hiding without his family. Three, four. His family would visit him at least once a week, which Ben thought was a little dangerous at times. Five, six. Ben was still sending in tapes to the FBI, but nothing came of it. Seven. Was selling hunting equipment for a while. Eight. Was selling motorcycles. Nine. I had a tall man's clothing store. Ten years gone by. This whole time, Ben was living under a number of aliases, depending on the IDs that his family gave him or the ones he would buy off homeless people. Sandoval Reyes, Ibn Saad Khalid. Eleven years. And Ben Holmes was still dead to the world. Sure, he slipped up a few times, once when he accidentally signed his real name at the dentist. But overall, it wasn't hard to beat the system. But it came at a cost. I saw shadows where there were no shadows. I see eyes where there were no eyes. Everybody else wanted to smoke weed and drink liquor. I couldn't do it. I had to have total concentration all the time. I think I had a beer or two on New Year's or something like that, and that was about it. I always felt like a prisoner. I had to use a, a fake name. Uh, then I had to go to sleep at night and wonder did I slip up and mention my name. I thought about it every time I went anywhere. I know you've heard that uh, a person's name, in some cases, defined them. Uh, my name, Benjamin, uh, meaning the right hand of the father. And here I'm ducking and dodging and hiding like a, like a, a sheep. I'm invisible. I'm absolutely nobody. I don't look people in the eye. Uh, I'm not wearing my hair the way I want to wear it. I don't look like me. I'm missing my family. And see, then there was always the thought, could I revive that person? Uh, the person that I was once upon a time. But the hardest part wasn't even the paranoia. It was the loneliness, the fact that he didn't have his family to go home to at night. Well, you know, I was around a lot of people all the time, and there's a such thing as being lonely in a crowded room. Uh, I wasn't there to see my grandmother uh, when she passed. Mo what I missed mostly was seeing my daughter grow up, uh, seeing her walk, talk. It got to the point where Ben secretly rode to Youngstown in his motorcycle just to see if he can catch a quick glimpse of his daughter, Benita. This was in the wintertime, and I was standing there watching my daughter getting on the bus one morning, getting ready to go to school. She was no more than about eight years old. I saw this van coming down at my daughter. The car jumped the curb. She ran up on the hill, uh, chased her up and almost hit her. I was freaking up. My thought is, but there's nothing I could do. So I cruised on up, you know. I asked her, was she okay? She said, yeah, she's fine. She didn't even know who I was. At first, Ben thought it was a mob or a police hit on his family. But it turned out, it was just the preacher's wife. Her car had slipped in the snow. I just groomed myself to that point that I was just paranoid, even in, in cases where it wasn't even necessary. Then finally, after 11 years, Ben got a phone call. It was his wife. My wife had uh, collected the insurance money off me being dead. She had bought a home. They told me that uh, the neighborhood we're in, nobody knows us. They don't know you. My wife and child decided, bring your butt on home. We'll take care of you. And so the cover story was that I was actually my brother, Robert. Robert lived all the way in Seattle, Washington. 
by living as Robert, Ben could live the life he had abandoned for so many years. Finally, my, my biggest wish had come true. I was home, I was safe, I was with my family. Eat dinner together. My father came by every day and we watched cowboy movies together at noon. Oh, I was wonderful. Hey, it was, you know what? It was what I had been holding out for. For the next nine years, Ben was thankful to have his life back. But it still was a little stressful. He kept his public appearances to a minimum and would hide in a secret closet whenever the doorbell rang, just in case. But at least for now, it seemed like there was no longer a bullseye on his back. After I moved into a new home, things were going fine. Uh, I was living a normal family man's life. Uh, one night I was in the bed and my wife was having a terrible dream and she turned over and looked at me and called me by another man's name. Uh, my reaction was that she's mistaken me for somebody else and she had the same dream over and over again. Then one morning. Nine o'clock, my wife, she was an hour late to go to work. She went downstairs to get dressed, but she came back up the steps. I'm lying in the bed, just about half asleep. And then all of a sudden, I hear the gunfire. I'm being shot. I couldn't believe my, 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 my mind. My wife had shot me. She was killing a dead man. It was a perfect murder. She walked up on me with the gun point blank. I snatched the gun and got up out the bed. She said I did it for Benita. She did it for Benita because the man had money and she thought that she could get her hands on whatever he had if I were out of the way. After I uh, had the gun in my hand, I told her, take me to the hospital. She said, are you going all the way to Akron the hospital? I told her, I'm not trying to bleed to death. She asked me, well, if you go to the hospital, they're going to know who you are. I said, I don't care. Whatever, whatever. I was tired of the whole thing. I was tired of the running, the ducking and dodging, the lying, the hiding, all of it. Didn't care anymore. I said, take me right down the street to the hospital. She was leading the way down the steps uh, with her arm around my waist and me leaning on her shoulder. I got to the bottom of the step and passed out. When I woke up, uh, it was like two days later, I was in the hospital. I'm looking down at my stomach, I'm looking at these bandages. But do they know who I am? Ben or do they know me as Robert? Ben or Robert? Was he Ben, a man who's been dead for 20 years? Or was he Robert, the man's brother? He looked down at his patient ID wristband. And the wristband said unidentified. So then this nurse walks in to draw some of my blood. She's cracking up. I'm trying to figure out what the big joke is. And she said, oh, I came out of school a year or two behind you. She made it perfectly clear to me that they knew who I was. And then she, she laughed and she put a hand on her hip and she looked at me and she said, well, what are we going to call you? Are you going to be Robert or are you Benjamin? I said, Benjamin? She said, yeah, that's your name, isn't it? Well, hell, they know who I am. You know, I had pain in the gut, but I still managed to laugh a little bit. I said, I'll be Ben today. I said it in a joking manner in front of company, but I was serious about it. It hit me in the heart. For the first time in all these years, I was actually me again. I was Benjamin Holmes Jr. After 20 years, Ben decided to be Ben for the first time. In the few years leading up to this, the FBI had convicted more than 70 cops, lawyers, mob figures, and public officials. And so after recovering, Ben went down to the Cleveland FBI office with a New York Times reporter and turned himself in. 
the FBI would use his valuable information to continue to clean up Youngstown. I kept wondering of all the opportunities uh, that, that I could have been caught, the mob, the fake black Muslims, the crooked cops, all of that. And it is crazy. Her shooting me is really what freed me to walk the streets and to go get a, a, a soda, a sandwich, to go to church, to go to a theater, to sit there and laugh and talk with my mother and my father or look after them when they got ill, to go to, to, go to my father's funeral, things I would not have been able to do before. That act, that act is what freed me to walk the streets a free man. Big thanks to Benjamin Holmes for sharing his incredible story. And don't worry, Snappers. Ben is now living in Youngstown, Ohio with his new fiance. Go ahead, player. I'll have a link to the New York Times piece about Benjamin Holmes' story at snapjudgment.org. Original score and sound design by Renzo Gorio with additional music by Alexander Randone and Matthew Hedick. It was produced by Davey Kim. Now, when Snap Judgment returns, how to be a Superman. For real, when the Man of Steel episode continues, stay tuned. From WNYC, Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Man of Steel episode. My name is Glenn Washington. Now then, be honest. Did you ever want to be a superhero? Not the saving the helpless part, but the superhuman feats part. Well, you're going to want to listen to this next story. And listen carefully. Some of the audio comes from the documentary Bending Steel. And Snap Judgment's Anna Sussman has the story. There's a guy in Queens named Chris Wondershek, and today he has that superhero middle name, Wonder. But as a kid, he never had any dreams of greatness. Um, as a matter of fact, I had dreams when I was a kid of becoming a coal miner. Was I ever sent on, set on being an astronaut and flying to the moon? No, no, no. I, I would say I was introverted. I had a lack of self-confidence. Things would come my way, and um, I would just shake my head and say, I'm, I'm not in, I, I, I don't do those things. I was always a little bit of a, a round peg trying to fit into a square hole, if you know what I mean. Oh, I tried school without great success. Uh, for a while, I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, I changed my mind on that. I wanted to be a chef. I worked at that for a while. Uh, gave that up. And
And then, out of nowhere, when he was 42 years old, he met a friend of a friend at a weightlifting event. They shook hands. And he uh, practically reduced my hand to gravel. I mean, I was almost on my knees. And I mentioned to a friend, I said, my gosh, who was that gentleman? And he said, that was uh, an original strongman from Coney Island. And my eyes lit up. Uh, It was like Christmas morning. The guy was pushing 100 years old. And back in the day, he used to be a strongman, an entertainer who performed feats of strength. Hurry, hurry, step this way, the strangest sights on the island. Bricks from the four corners of the world. What two nickels, one dime, a tenth part of a dollar. We've got the show if you've got the dime. It's just starting. So hurry, hurry. In the old days, some of the old-time strongmen on Coney Island used to lift uh, Herculean weights with one arm, with one finger. They may tear poker cards, they might bend spikes, bend steel bars. Coney Island, it's been a place I've been to when I was a kid. I remember a lot of offbeat or unusual entertainment, people that found themselves unable to connect with the rest of the world. They go there, they breathe fire, they juggle, they, I don't know, ride unicycles, and they are all welcomed as, as performers. Um, something about it must have stuck. That afternoon, or shortly thereafter, I went to a scrapyard and purchased all sorts of pieces of steel and spikes, and I put the bars over my knees, I put the bars behind my head, I did everything I could do to try and bend them. Uh, not knowing what I was doing. So, Chris figured he needed some outside help. I was curious if any of the old-time strongmen still lived. It turns out there's a handful of new old-time strongmen who perform feats of strength. They give shows at parties, carnivals, traveling shows. And they all kind of know each other. They invited Chris over to one of the guy's houses for dinner. Instantly, I was in another world. He had a beautiful welding shop uh, filled with stainless steel tables, covered with bars and horseshoes and spikes, and and the walls were adorned with uh, accomplishments of other old-time strongmen. And I was just... I knew that this was a world that I wanted to be part of. The guys gave him an industrial steel bar, about two feet long, five-sixteenths of an inch thick, and said, start with this. I said, it isn't happening. It's, it's just not happening. I didn't really believe that anybody could bend that bar for real. So he starts practicing in his studio apartment in Astoria. He learns certain grips, leverage points. See, old-time strongmen don't use tricks or illusions. They use strength. And eventually, using these techniques he felt the steel bar start to give. The euphoria is, is, is very difficult to describe. Without ever having tried it, I would have to say it, the closest feeling to it is probably morphine. It's a gen, general feeling of ecstasy. To hear it crack, to see the mill slag fall off it, uh, it's just... Um, 
it's almost like a meditation in motion. After you get past the uh, physical aspect, the where there's a certain pain barrier involved, there becomes a tremendous psychological aspect to bending steel. Initially, the most appealing thing was knowing that I could do something that most big men could not do. He's not a big guy, 5'7", 150 pounds with all his clothes on. He learned to bend nails, horseshoes, small steel bars. And I filled up my uh, studio apartment, which is probably, I don't know, 400 square feet at best, with you know these things laying all over the floor. And uh, I needed for myself to bend something really spectacular. So he orders in the mail from a building supply company a steel bar that was three-eighths of an inch thick, 30 inches long. I spent um, probably, oh gosh, six, eight months or something trying to bend that bar. I could tell you I pushed and pushed on that bar nearly every day, and it didn't budge. I didn't even get it to flex. He spent more and more time with the other old-time strongmen. It's almost like a, a, an extended family. People refer to them as freaks, and we may advertise ourselves as freaks, but I don't think we're freaks. I think we're just, I don't want to say unusual, but not typical people, but we all come together and there's sort of like a, a nice general family feeling there. One guy became his mentor, a guy named Chris Hercules Ryder, because he could break steel chains with his hair. And one day, Chris Hercules pulled Chris Wonder aside and said, bending steel was only one component of becoming an old-time strongman. My mentor made it clear to me that as a performer, you're there to entertain people. Uh, getting up there in front of a, a large group of people, um, it just never came naturally to me. So what we elected to do is take a piece of cardboard and draw figures on it. And I would uh, perform in front of this mock audience. I, had, I have videos of several practices. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Chris Sheck. I'm a strong man. Uh, and I hope to give you an equal performance to some of the other folks tonight. We've had magicians. We've had musicians. I want to assure you that what I'm doing is not magic. Although you may think I'm a comedian telling you that I'm a strongman at 150 pounds. In the strongman culture, there was a certain barrier to entry. And that usually... In particular, he was practicing for one event, his debut. We were going to have an old-time strongman extravaganza. We would have probably six or, I don't know, six or seven well-known performers do their favorite feats on stage. I would be the last performer, as this was basically an evening for me to gain entrance to this, um, what I call, elite group of people. The extravaganza was to take place on Coney Island, which, of course, for Chris, was perfect. I, I believe the environment is most conducive to, like I said, um, 
round pegs trying to fit square holes. And it, it is a round hole for a round peg. The extravaganza was a big deal. Chris wanted to invite his mom and dad to be in the audience. I planned to have dinner with my parents, and during that dinner, I would explain to them exactly what I was doing and that I was able to perform these feats, which someday hopefully will turn into show business. When you were a kid, did you ever go to Coney Island? A few times. Were you ever, did you ever see the strongman perform? This is footage of this dinner from a documentary made about Chris and other old-time strongmen. I guess what we're trying to do is to bring this back. Mm -hmm. And that's something, I think that if done very correctly, it could be a very good business. Yeah, but how do you do that? Are you going to check the cake? Yes. When you see some little guy like me get up there and bend some serious stuff. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Show us. We'll show you. He asked them to come into the backyard, where he would show them some of his feats of strength. I tore, oh, countless decks of playing cards and looked at my father and he said, well, if they were half as many, you probably wouldn't have been able to get the edge and tear them. So I took half as many and tore them and quartered them, did everything else with them. Now, I'm going to be doing a show on Coney Island, and it's going to be a big show with probably six guys, and it's going to lead up to sort of my official entree into this world. And there'll probably be a lot of people there. So would you guys like to come? I'd like very much if you guys came. Take it slow. Get your breath back. But it would have been nice to kind of get a a smile or a kind of uh, a subtle sign of approval. I was I was a little discouraged. Listen, this. So the twenty ninth is the day of the show. Uh, There'll be a front couple of seats reserved for you. What are the times? Uh, I'll let you know in plenty of time. Are you that busy? 29th? Okay, 29th. All right, good enough. We'll see you. Bye, bye, bye. The anxiety was building and building and building the closer we got to it. (laughs) Like, I started being anxious six months before, and each day it got closer and closer, I started to roll around a little bit more and more in my sleep. He was anxious about performing, he was anxious about the audience and his fellow strongmen, but most of all, he was anxious about that steel bar he planned to try and bend at the show. So I figured, put it on the wall, in the hallway, you'll see it every day. You'll see it every day. I don't want to say it became a friend, but it almost took on an animation. Um, I would hold it, I'd run my finger along it, um, you can hear the pitch. Uh, I don't know if I was holding it and trying to sort of make a deal with it, bargain with it. Uh, I can remember talking with it. I can remember going to sleep at night and waking up with it at the foot of my bed. (laughs) The morning of the Coney Island show, I pulled that bar 
off the wall and stuck it in between my legs. And I tried to pull. I tried. I wanted to see that that bar just, you know, would at least flex. And it wasn't going. It wasn't going. We left early in the morning. It was a beautiful day. Beautiful. And I had the bar underneath my arm. At that, By that time, the bar became a bit of a, a friend, um, a constant companion. And I was looking at my watch, of course, saying, my God, very shortly, I'm going to have to get out there on stage. They are real, they are alive, they are on the inside. They are the strong men. There were two seats reserved for my parents in the front. They were side-by-side -side seats with their name on it. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. And I was the last fellow to go. But the side-by-side -side folding chairs remained empty. It is what it is. Um, no, they did not show up to the show. Good evening, folks. My name is Chris Wondershek, and I'm an old-time strongman. This bar has been sitting on my wall for four, six months. It's been doing nothing but tormenting me because this is two inches of structural steel, 30 inches long. I've never done this before, so I'm really going to need all of your support. And my two biggest fears as a performer are crowds, unfortunately, and obviously the fear of failure. So I have both of them right here. Possibility of failure, entering the unknown, and obviously a crowd. So when I leave tonight, after this selfish moment, I hope that both those fears are gone. Those are fears that have held me back all my life. And I hope it doesn't have to go back up on the wall straight again. I'm going to hit this thing with everything I got. I have to say I broke my rules at that time. And I was, uh, I had a little hesitation. I was convinced that, I hate to say it, but, well, failure was a possibility. When I picked up that bar, I was either going to be successful at bending it, or they were going to carry me off the stage. Chris stands alone on the stage for a long time, grunting and pulling on the bar. I enter a Zen mode. I enter the warrior mode. It hurt, and it hurt. I try to fuzz out the world. The, the audience, I try to fuzz out everything else. That's about all I got, folks. And then the bar starts to flex, and then bends into a perfect U shape. I cannot believe that. 
I cannot believe that forward. Right on, right on. Again, we lean on the fantastic documentary Bending Steel for that story. You can see it for yourself. We'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. The sound design for that piece was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Anna Sussman. Now then, it's almost that time. Almost. But there's good news. Not one, two, three, but four full Snap episodes never broadcast on the radio because the man said this pushes the limit. You can't put that on the air. They include the misunderestimated and the student and the teacher specials only available on the Snap Judgment Podcast. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, however you do, do subscribe today. Call your favorite over and y'all can snap judgment and chill. Hit snap on the Facebook and the Twitter for snap extras. Snap judgment comes from the orbiting hall of justice by a team of powerful galactic protectors. Give it up for the uber goober producer, Mark Ristich. Lightning, Pat and City Miller, Anna, the Sonic Avenger Sussman, Changeling, Davy Kemp, Nancy Lopez, the Weather Warrior, Joe, Hercules Rosenberg, Eliza the Cat Smith, Granite Man, Renzo Gorio, The Winged Mystery, Tail Ducat, Leon, Star Force, Morimoto, listen to the magic mind of Jasmine Aguilera. Because even though this is not the news, no way is this the news. In fact, you could try to bend a column of steel using only your muscles, but just as you give up, blast the thing to smithereens with your heat vision, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC. 